This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. For Lance Armstrong, the 10th stage of the 2001 Tour de France was the first opportunity for him to put his stamp on the race. Containing three massive climbs, it culminated at the summit of the legendary Alpe d'Huez. If Lance could gain enough time on his closest rivals, he'd be all but guaranteed to win his third consecutive title. But as the peloton began to wind its way up the Alpe d'Huez famed 21 switchbacks, Lance found himself in an unusual position, at the back. Powerful riders like Germany's Jan Ulrich set a blistering pace as the race hit the lower slopes. For a moment, it seemed like Lance would get dropped like a lead balloon. But then he rose out of his seat and surged past his rivals. His apparent weakness had been a ruse. And now Jan Ulrich and the race's other so-called heads of state could only watch as Lance disappeared up the road. When it was all said and done, Lance finished two full minutes ahead of Ulrich. It was a dominant stage win and set the tone for his eventual victory in Paris 12 days later. But Lance's clever gamesmanship wasn't the only trickery he used in that year's Tour de France. In fact, his incredible display throughout the entire 23-day race was one massive deception. Because it was fueled by a performance-enhancing drug called EPO. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
This is our first of two episodes on Lance Armstrong, who won the Tour de France a record seven times from 1999 to 2005. But like many of his fellow pro cyclists, Lance's victories were aided by the use of performance-enhancing drugs. This week, we'll chart Lance's rise through the cycling ranks as he overcame cancer to become the sport's most dominant figure and how he crushed anyone who dared to question the legitimacy of his Tour de France victories. Next week, we'll examine how that same iron-fisted approach led to his own demise as Lance's most trusted confidants all betrayed their former leader. If there was one thing Lance Armstrong loved to do, it was compete. However, growing up in Plano, Texas, Lance lacked the skill to play baseball, the strength to play football, or the coordination to play basketball. But even though Lance couldn't outplay his opponents, he could outlast them. In 1984, 13-year-old Lance tried his hand at endurance sports, well, namely triathlons. He was obsessed with training. Even as an eighth grader, Lance kept a meticulous logbook of his various workouts. He was constantly trying to improve, seeking the tiniest edge on his competitors. By the time Lance was 16, he turned pro. At 18, he was the national sprint course triathlon champion. But the rapid success did little to change the fact that Lance didn't care for running or swimming. His true passion was the bike. After graduating high school, he moved to Austin and began racing for the U.S. amateur cycling team. Lance burst onto the cycling scene like a meteor. In 1991, the 20-year-old won the U.S. Amateur National Championship. The result earned him a spot on the 92 Olympic team. Although Lance finished a middling 14th, he was still considered one of cycling's rising stars. Immediately after the Olympic road race, he turned pro with the U.S.-based Motorola team. Only six days after joining Motorola, Lance participated in his first road race, the one-day Classica de San Sebastian. He finished dead last. But Lance was undeterred. If anything, the setback only stoked his competitive fire. When the next season dawned in January 1993, he was determined to take part in cycling's biggest race, the Tour de France. First held in 1903, the Tour de France is so highly regarded because of its history and difficulty. Held over 23 days in July, its annually changing route covers an average of 2,200 grueling miles. Over 21 individual stages, the riders in the peloton, the cycling term for a large group of riders, struggle up at least two major mountain ranges, speed across blisteringly hot countryside, jostle through serpentine cobbled streets. It's the ultimate test of strength, skill, and endurance. At only 22 years old, Lance didn't have the experience needed to win the overall classification. On average, Tour de France winners are about 28 and a half years old. Generally, older riders do well because they have a more diverse skill set. They need the agility to fly up mountain passes, the strength to power through individual time trials, and the bike handling skills to stay upright when things get chaotic. But Lance's youth, aggression, and unceasing desire made him useful in another aspect of the race, winning an individual stage. 
Each one of the 21 stages is a race within the overall contest. Not only does winning one come with significant prize money, it's great publicity for a team's sponsor. Lance was on Motorola's nine-man Tour de France team for that express purpose. And just over a week into the race, Lance got his chance. The eighth stage was an undulating ride through the hilly French countryside. In most stages like this, a few riders will try to ride away from the peloton early and form breakaway groups. Most of the time, they get reeled in before the finish, allowing the sprinters to compete for the win. But in some cases, the sprinters' teams wait too long to start chasing the breakaways, and these ambitious riders get the chance to fight amongst themselves for the glory. In the last few miles of the eighth stage, a breakaway group of three riders took advantage of some momentary chaos to surge ahead over the top of a small climb. Sensing they had the strength to stay away, Lance and two others were able to bridge the gap to these three leaders. His bet paid off. As the race entered the final kilometer, Lance's six-man group had a 15-second lead. With the peloton closing in at over 30 miles per hour, it would be a close call. In cycling, a final sprint is a test of wills. Go too early and you might fade before the finish. Too late and you might not be able to pass the other riders in time. It's a delicate balance that involves immaculate timing, gamesmanship, and strategy. Pressured by the onrushing peloton, the other riders began their sprint earlier than usual. However, Lance didn't panic. Riding near the back of the group, he let the others expend their energy. Finally, with about 100 meters left, he pounced. Streaking up the side of the road, Lance raced around his competitors to eke out a photo finish. It was the first major victory of Lance's career. Although he didn't manage any more stage wins that year, his victory meant the tour was a major success for Lance and his team and he was only getting stronger. In the last week of August 1993, Lance lined up for the World Championship road race in Oslo, Norway. It had been just over a year since he had finished last in the Classica de San Sebastian. But now, with the Tour de France stage win on his resume, many believed Lance could win. But even though the one-day race played to Lance's strengths, he'd be racing against the cream of the crop. The race conditions perfectly suited Lance's combative approach. With rain pouring down onto the slicked streets, it was less about outdueling his opponents and more about who could stay on his bike the longest. Essentially, who was the most determined. Determination just so happened to be one of Lance's greatest strengths. As the 161-mile race neared its end, he simply rode away from the pack. Clad in a jersey adorned with the stars and stripes, Lance raised his arms in victory as he crossed the finish line, alone. Standing on the podium, the world champion's rainbow jersey fitted snugly to his torso. It seemed like pro cycling was his for the taking. In his first year as a professional, Lance had already accomplished more than most cyclists did in their entire careers. Even in America, where cycling was a minor sport at best, he was getting profiled in magazines like Sports Illustrated. He was the next big thing. But it still wasn't enough. 
Weighing in at 165 pounds, Lance's stocky build was the ideal physique for the rough-and-tumble spring classics. Usually held in adverse conditions like the World Championships, these one-day races perfectly played to Lance's strengths. With enough endurance, grit, and determination, he could be in a position to win on any given day. But Lance and his American teammates suddenly found themselves unable to compete with the peloton's European riders. They were too fast, too strong. Something had changed. The competitive disparity came to a head on April 20th, 1994, in the Flesh Wallon Classic. As the peloton crawled up an intensely steep hill called the Mur de Huy, three riders from the Italian Gavis Ballon team cruised away from the pack. This development was practically unheard of in pro cycling. Even though races were based on individual results, it usually took a whole team to get the victor to the finish line. Someone had to drop back to the team car to get water bottles. Someone had to ride in the wind so the leader could conserve his energy. Teammates had to flank him and act as shields against crashes. These responsibilities usually left the other riders exhausted and unable to compete for the win. But that day, the three Gavis Ballon riders, nearly half of the seven-man team, rode away on the Muir de Huy. The eye-catching result immediately raised eyebrows within the cycling community. Three riders from the same team taking the podium simply didn't happen. The day after the race, journalists cornered the Gavis Ballon team doctor, Michele Ferrari. They wanted to know if his riders had used a performance-enhancing drug called EPO. Short for erythropoietin, EPO is a hormone that increases red blood cell production. Medically, it's extremely useful for anemia cases and other diseases that reduce red blood cell count. But for endurance sports like cycling, EPO has a tremendous performance-enhancing effect, too. A higher red blood cell count allows more oxygen to be carried to a person's muscles. In turn, the extra oxygenation delays the onset of fatigue and helps with endurance. But EPO use carries extreme danger. The added cells thicken the blood, making it harder for the heart to pump. For sports like cycling that create high heart rates, this side effect puts EPO abusers at significant risk of cardiac arrest. Because of this unfair advantage, as well as the health risks, by the 94 Flesh Wallon Classic, EPO had been banned for several years. But banning it was one thing. Keeping riders from using it was another. At the time, there was no test to detect EPO. Unless a team or rider actually got caught with it in their possession, there was no way to actually stop anyone from using it. After the Flesh Wallon, Dr. Ferrari didn't do anything to dispel the cloud of suspicion hanging over his team. When asked to comment on the potential dangers of using EPO, Ferrari dismissed it with a proverbial wave of the hand. According to him, EPO is not dangerous. Its abuse is. It is also dangerous to drink 10 liters of orange juice. Ferrari was promptly fired from his team, but nobody had actually caught him administering EPO, he was free to work with anyone bold enough to approach him. One of those people was Lance Armstrong. The flesh on loss was incredibly demoralizing for Lance. He had outdueled some of the world's strongest riders only a few months prior. 
Now he could only watch as three guys from the same team held off the entire peloton for almost 50 miles. If he was going to stay competitive, he had to take his efforts to the next level. That meant taking EPO. Sure, taking EPO was a grave violation of sporting and personal ethics, but in Lance's mind, he was only leveling the playing field. It was a similar ethos to baseball's steroid era. If a batter and a pitcher were both juicing, who's to say that either had an advantage? Communicating through a mutual acquaintance, it took Lance the better part of a year to arrange a meeting with Ferrari. But by November 1995, the two of them were working together. With a full off-season of EPO-assisted training under his belt, the 1996 season was sure to be a good one. It certainly started off promisingly. That spring, Lance cruised to victory at the American Tour du Pont stage race. In the process, he set a record for the largest margin of victory at 3 minutes 15 seconds. But the rest of the season was a struggle. Lance was unable to finish the Tour de France, even though he'd placed 36 the year before. Even on home soil in Atlanta, he was unremarkable at the Olympics. Something wasn't right. He was tired, he was hurting, but Lance refused to acknowledge something was wrong. He'd get through whatever was ailing him. Then one day, Lance started coughing up blood. There was no denying it now. He had to go to a doctor. On October 2nd, 1996, Lance Armstrong received news that would change his life forever. He had cancer, and he only had a 50% chance to live. Coming up, Lance fights for his life. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. On October 2nd, 1996, 25-year-old Lance Armstrong was diagnosed with testicular cancer. The disease had spread into his abdomen, lungs, and lymph nodes. There were lesions on his brain. The day after his diagnosis, Lance had his right testicle removed. Two weeks later, he flew to Indianapolis for brain surgery. Luckily, he had a great support system. In fact, so many friends and acquaintances came to Indianapolis that they spent most of their time in a hospital common room. Two of these well-wishers were Lance's teammate, Frankie Andreu, and Frankie's wife, Betsy. During one of these gatherings, two doctors came into the common room to gather Lance's medical history. For some reason, Lance didn't ask anyone to leave. In front of the Andreus and four others, he casually admitted that he had taken EPO, testosterone, growth hormone, cortisone, and steroids. Maybe he had bigger things on his mind. After all, his doctors had given him a 50-50 chance at survival. And even if he did make it, there was no guarantee that he'd resume his pro cycling career. Well, at the time, PED use wasn't a big deal either. With no test to detect EPO, it would be nearly impossible for him to get caught. What's more, the people in the common room were some of Lance's closest friends. Perhaps he believed they'd never betray him. Whatever the reason, 
Lance's circle of trust had been irrevocably expanded. Despite the uphill battle he faced, Lance was declared cancer-free in February 1997. With the disease firmly in his rearview mirror, Lance turned his attention to resuming his cycling career. Unfortunately, Lance's old Motorola team had folded after the 1996 season. But in its place, a new American team had risen. Sponsored by the Postal Service, the newly formed USPS team was eager to make its mark on professional cycling. They signed Lance to a contract in late 1997. Lance was the perfect low-risk, high-reward acquisition. If he returned to his previous heights, he could be one of the team's best riders. Even if he didn't, Lance's story would generate publicity for a sport that many Americans didn't care for. The comeback started slowly but surely. His first race was the Ruta del Sol, held in February 1998. Lance didn't win any stages, but he placed an encouraging 15th place overall. Because he was still working back to full fitness, Lance didn't participate in that year's Tour de France. But if he had, he may have gotten embroiled in one of the biggest scandals in the race's history. On July 8, 1998, French customs officials stopped an employee of the Spanish Festina cycling team at the French-Belgian border. When they searched his car, they discovered bags full of EPO, steroids, syringes, pills, and other doping materials. It was three days before the Tour de France was scheduled to start. This discovery set off a volatile chain reaction. After the Festina team director admitted the entire team was under a regimented doping program, race officials began conducting raids on the other squads in the race. Eventually, the entire Festina team was thrown out of the tour. Nearly 100 out of the race's 189 riders ended up quitting in protest. While they might not all have been doping, throwing an entire team out of the race was a dangerous precedent. They wanted to stand in solidarity with the expelled Festina riders. Although Festina was the only team to get caught in the scandal, it's probably because the others had enough time to get rid of any incriminating evidence. And that included Lance's USPS team. According to former USPS team masseuse Emma O'Reilly, PEDs were pervasive amongst the riders. After the 1998 tour of Holland, Lance asked O'Reilly to dispose of a bag of syringes for him. While he didn't say that they had been used to inject EPO, she could read between the lines. After all, if the syringes had been used for above-the-board purposes, they could have been discarded in an above-the-board manner. But for the moment, Lance and the USPS team had escaped further scrutiny. With Lance's comeback firmly on track, he lined up for the 1998 Vuelta a España, held that September. Like the Tour de France, the Vuelta was a three-week race throughout Spain. It would be a great test to see if Lance had the juice to compete in the sport's longer races. But this time, he wouldn't be competing for individual stage wins. He'd be going for the overall title. Before his cancer, Lance had been too heavy to compete with the agile climbers who practically flew up Europe's steepest mountain passes. He had also lacked the necessary discipline to correctly conserve his energy to strategically attack his weakened rivals. 
Not to mention, he hadn't been using EPO. Armed with a new physique and teammates who were ready to fully support him, Lance placed an impressive fourth overall, less than two years since his cancer diagnosis. The next season, Lance's team director decided he would be leading USPS at the Tour de France. After the dark stain of the Vestina scandal the year before, the 1999 tour was being billed as the Tour of Renewal. Kicking off on July 3rd at a theme park in western France, the first stage was a short 6.8-kilometer time trial. Described as the race of truth, a time trial consists of the individual riders competing to see who can ride the course in the shortest amount of time. Think special bikes, aerodynamic helmets, and lycra skin suits. Lance won with ease, coming in over eight seconds faster than the second place rider. For such a short course, that was a huge gap. But even though Lance had performed well in the 98 Vuelta, nobody expected this sort of ride from him. It was time for Lance to face the press. As Lance entered the press room, the gathered journalists murmured in anticipation. What would he say? Who would ask the first question? The air was thick with tension. But before a reporter could even raise his hand, Lance spoke into the microphone. He wasn't going to let anyone dictate the terms of this exchange. In what would become a common theme, Lance went on the offensive. He scolded the assembled journalists for assuming people's guilt with no proof. He told them it was time to leave the past behind and to embrace the sport's bright future, a future he embodied. It certainly was a feel-good story. Not only did Lance come back from a life-threatening disease, he came back from it stronger. He didn't even have to make any excuses for how he was so fast. The press did it for him. After all, how could Lance inject himself with dangerous drugs after having undergone the nightmare of chemotherapy? After such an ordeal, surely even the sight of a needle would be too much to stomach. Of course, none of that was true. And only a few days into the race, the truth came out. Lance tested positive for cortisone. Like EPO, cortisone is a naturally occurring hormone that helps combat stress, but it's also extremely useful for muscle recovery. Although it is legal to use in some sports, it's been banned in cycling since 1968. The only way to use it is for an acceptable medical reason. And the USPS team decided that Lance's reason would be saddle sores, basically blisters that form from sitting on a bike for too long. They whipped up a backdated prescription, and voila, the positive test was never released. From the USPS team to the Tour de France organizers to the International Cycling Union itself, nobody wanted to see Lance taken down. This was the Tour of Renewal, it wouldn't do to have their new yellow jersey-clad star getting taken down for such a minor offense. With the International Cycling Union's tacit blessing, Lance went on to crush the competition. On the first major mountain stage, he finished 31 seconds ahead of his nearest rival and widened his overall lead in the race to over six minutes. Most people were hailing it as one of the most impressive athletic displays in recent memory. But not everyone was so impressed. Notably, a rider within the race itself. And his insolence wouldn't be tolerated. 
Coming up, Lance imposes his will on the Tour de France. And now back to the story. At the 1999 Tour de France, Lance Armstrong came out of nowhere to win the first stage and claim the yellow jersey. But while most people were singing his praises, not everyone was afraid to point out just how unbelievable his performance was. Throughout the 99 tour, a French writer named Christophe Basson was speaking out about the doping culture that still pervaded the sport. While he didn't single Lance out specifically, Basson claimed that it wasn't possible to be in the top 10 without doping. He had a point. Between 1999 and 2005, a whopping 20 out of the 21 top three podium finishers were linked to performance-enhancing drugs. Clearly, Lance couldn't let such a slight go unpunished. By speaking out about the doping culture within cycling, Basson was breaking the unwritten rule of omerta, an Italian mafia term for silence. It was one of the sport's central tenets. Nobody was supposed to talk about doping. Not the riders, not the organizations, not even the media outlets that covered the sport. Anyone who spoke out about it had to be punished. And with Basson refusing to stop, it was up to the newly branded boss of the peloton to put him in his place. The stage after his big win in the mountains, Lance decided that the race would proceed at a slower pace until they hit the day's first climb. Either Basson didn't get the message, or he just didn't care. He launched a breakaway attack in defiance of Lance's desire to take it easy for a bit. Lance was not happy. His French upstart had to be sent a message. Even though Basson wasn't a threat to take the yellow jersey, Lance ordered his entire team to give pursuit. The mighty USPS team chewed up the road, catching up to Basson in short order. As the rest of the peloton figuratively looked in the other direction, the blue-clad American team surrounded Basson. Lance pulled up next to him and put a hand on his shoulder. It was like a scene from The Godfather, albeit with much tighter clothes. Lance was Don Corleone, and Besson had wronged his family. In no uncertain terms, Lance told Besson that speaking out about PEDs would not be tolerated. When Besson refused to yield, Lance not so gently suggested that he find a new profession. The exchange sent waves through the peloton. Nobody spoke up in Besson's defense, not even his own teammates. Two days later, he abandoned the race. Lance's message was clear to see. Anyone who dared to question his legitimacy would be punished, and that extended to journalists. By the time the final stage rolled into Paris, thousands of fans lined the barricades to get a glimpse at cycling's newest champion. Lance rode down the city's iconic Champs-Élysées Boulevard, a flute of champagne in hand. Most outlets were hailing Lance as an incredible role model, a hero. But not everyone had fallen under his spell. One journalist in particular wasn't drinking Lance's Kool-Aid. David Walsh, a writer for Britain's Sunday Times newspaper, was the most vocal of a small group of skeptics. After watching Lance dominate the competition, Walsh became convinced that the USPS team leader was doping. While most journalists were showering praise on Lance for his impressive victory, Walsh was casting doubt, and his negative articles didn't go unnoticed. 
On the first day of the 2000 Tour de France, Walsh was approached by Lance's agent, Bill Stapleton. He acknowledged that Lance was aware of Walsh's negative articles, and he wanted them to stop. If they didn't, Walsh would be hearing from Lance's lawyers. But Walsh wasn't intimidated. If anything, he was encouraged to keep digging. However, simply pointing out that Lance's performances were too good to be true wasn't enough. If Walsh was going to expose Lance as a fraud, he'd have to get some proof. Despite the journalist's best efforts, the 2000 tour came and went without any major revelations. Although an intrepid French journalist discreetly videotaped the USPS team doctor disposing of suspect medical waste, the ensuing investigation found no evidence of wrongdoing. Lance emerged from his second consecutive victory with his reputation intact. But in early 2001, Walsh uncovered a treasure trove of new information, the personal files belonging to one Dr. Michele Ferrari. After his return from cancer, Lance had continued to work with Ferrari on his doping strategy. But the Italian police had caught up to Ferrari's game, and he was due to stand trial at the end of 2001 for procuring and supplying performance-enhancing drugs. Through a connection to one of the detectives investigating the case, Walsh was able to look through Ferrari's files. Unfortunately, they had only been able to seize data from 1997, the same year Lance was working his way back to full health and hadn't resumed doping, so his name wasn't anywhere to be found. However, one of Lance's USPS teammates was. Kevin Livingston was regarded as a domestique, a rider whose first, second, and third job was to make Lance's life easier during a race. He was a strong rider, but he was a follower, not a leader. If he was using EPO, Walsh was sure it was at Lance's behest. With Walsh poking around the Ferrari case, it was only a matter of time until Lance heard about it. In April 2001, Bill Stapleton was once again dispatched to take care of the pesky journalist. But this time, instead of the stick, Stapleton offered Walsh a carrot, an exclusive interview with Lance. Walsh wasn't sure what to make of it, the offer hadn't come with any strings attached. He suspected Lance thought the exclusive access might mollify the questions Walsh was asking. Or maybe Lance thought he could crush Walsh in a single blow. Regardless of the motivation, Walsh wasn't going to let this golden opportunity pass him by. It was a chance to get Lance's answers about doping officially on the record. Naturally, Lance denied ever using any performance-enhancing drugs. But Walsh expected as much. He was more interested in what Lance would say about Dr. Ferrari. Lance acknowledged that he knew Ferrari, but he was evasive when Walsh asked him about the nature of their relationship. He acknowledged that they had worked together in some capacity, but refused to give any specifics. Although he hadn't gotten an outright confession, Walsh came out of the interview certain that he was on the right track. He went back to his contact in the Italian police to try and get more information. While there weren't any documents definitively linking Lance to Ferrari, Walsh's police contact did find out that Lance had visited Ferrari's town in March 1999, May 2000, August 2000, September 2000, and late April, early May of 2001. 
shortly after the interview with Walsh. These visits all came during prep periods for the tour and the Olympic road race. The gun wasn't smoking, but it was very hot. Walsh felt confident enough to put the information he'd gathered into a Sunday Times article. It would run on the first day of the 2001 Tour de France. Three days before publication, Walsh sent Bill Stapleton everything he had on Lance's connection to Dr. Ferrari. It was Lance's chance to acknowledge the connection himself. But the journalist overplayed his hand. Now Lance knew everything Walsh did. Instead of responding, he used the opportunity to get ahead of the story. In an exclusive interview for an Italian newspaper, Lance claimed he was working with Ferrari in preparation for an attempt on the world hour record. Others might have gone to Ferrari for PEDs, but not him. By and large, media outlets felt like the excuse was thin, but for the moment, it was enough to keep the press off his back. And as Lance loved to remind anyone who'd listen, he had never tested positive in a doping test. Of course, that was because there was no test for EPO. The only way a rider could get caught for it was if his red blood cell count registered past an arbitrary level. However, for the 2001 tour, drug testers finally got a new weapon in their arsenal, a test that could detect EPO. But by that point, sophisticated drug users like Lance were already a step ahead. Instead of injecting EPO during the race, they got transfusions of their own blood that they had previously oxygenated. By the time it was in their systems, the EPO was long gone. This new strategy allowed Lance to ride to yet another comprehensive victory. With nobody able to challenge him, he easily won his third tour. He was in rarefied air. Only seven others had won three tours. In an article that ran on the race's final day, David Walsh hit many of the same beats as before. Lance's performances were too good to be true. There were too many questions still surrounding him that there was nothing to celebrate. But this article had something none of the others did. A comment from Greg LeMond. Before Lance came along, Greg LeMond was the most talented American to ever ride a bike. He had won the Tour de France three times, in 1986, 1989, and 1990. But he wanted Walsh to know he wasn't a has-been who was jealous of the athlete poised to surpass him. It was about doing right by the sport he loved. LeMond was extremely skeptical of Lance's relationship with Dr. Ferrari. Skeptical enough to suspect that Lance might be a doper. He told Walsh, if Lance is clean, it is the greatest comeback in the history of sport. If he isn't, it would be the greatest fraud. LeMond was right. In addition to the spectacular feat of coming back from cancer to win the Tour de France three times in a row, the accomplishment would be even more impressive if Lance was as clean as he said he was. If he was able to overcome cancer and a juiced-up peloton, he certainly deserved a place amongst cycling greats. However, Lance knew all too well that he wasn't clean. A few days after the article ran and the tour concluded, LeMond got a call from the man himself. According to LeMond, Lance threatened to have people come out of the woodwork to say LeMond had used EPO back in his day. 
but LeMond refused to yield. His heyday had been before EPO wormed its way into cycling. LeMond reiterated that he was concerned about Lance's link to Ferrari. Even though Ferrari was facing criminal charges for administering PEDs, Lance had refused to cut ties with him. Until he did, LeMond would continue to be skeptical. Lance did not take kindly to LeMond's defiance. Working through various sponsors, he exerted significant financial pressure on LeMond to retract his statement. LeMond got a call from the USPS team president, then a message from the CEO of Bell Helmets, then an executive from a real estate company, and finally the head of Trek Bicycles, who distributed LeMond's signature line. They all had the same thing to say. Toe the line or face the consequences. Faced with little choice, LeMond's apology appeared in USA Today. I sincerely regret that some of my remarks seem to question the veracity of Lance's performances. I want to be clear that I believe Lance to be a great champion, and I do not believe in any way that he has ever used any performance-enhancing substances. I believe his performances are the result of the same hard work, dedication, and focus that were mine ten years before. Once again, Lance had beaten an opponent into submission. Like with the French writer Christophe Basson, he had used his influence to threaten LeMond's livelihood. No matter how much LeMond wanted to do the right thing, it wasn't worth the risk. However, there were some people who Lance simply couldn't control. People who valued truth and honesty over any sort of financial, legal, or personal consequence. And one of them had first-hand knowledge that Lance was a doper. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with our second and final episode on Lance Armstrong. As more and more people come out of the woodwork to accuse Lance of doping, he resorts to increasingly drastic measures to preserve his spotless reputation. In addition to the many sources we used, we found Seven Deadly Sins by David Walsh extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 